Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. South Africa's president has a lot on his plate after his first year in office. Unemployment is rising, international investment is falling, and he's promised to tackle the corruption that runs rampant in his party. Oh, and there's an election coming up. Also, it's the elephant in the room, the smoking gun, sometimes it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Metaphors can go too far, and our language columnist declares war. First up, though. Last week, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a new congresswoman with big policy ambitions, revealed her Green New Deal. It's a proposal for sweeping new legislation on the environment and much more. Climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not Not just as a nation, but as a world. And in order for us to combat that threat, We must be as ambitious and innovative in our solution as possible. That ambition is evident in the plan's name, harking back to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, itself a radical set of policies to repair and rebuild a country racked by the Depression. It is time for courageous action. And the recovery bill gives us the means. Cory Booker was among the co-sponsors of the resolution and evinced the same spirit of radical change. I believe the America should, should lead, and it should lead boldly. And so the Green New Deal is this, is this bold idea that we need to lean in to do something about... Republicans pounced on the plan, with President Trump decrying it as government overreach. They want to take away your car, reduce the value of your home, and put millions of Americans out of work Spend a hundred trillion dollars. Yesterday, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, pledged that the legislation would be voted upon. I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal. And we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. We'll give everybody an opportunity to go on record and uh, see how they feel about the Green uh, New Deal. That vote may prove an important political statement. While the plan is popular with the Democrats' progressive wing, it's unclear how the issue will play into election campaigns. Several Democratic presidential hopefuls backed the deal before knowing all of the details. Here's the problem, though. There aren't many details. This is just a sketch, a hint at economic and social change on an enormous scale. There's little on how to enact them or how to finance them vision statement. I guess maybe the best way to describe it. Our economics columnist, Ryan Avent, based in Washington, has been digging a little deeper. And what it is really is an attempt to put climate policy back on the agenda 
in a really big way, in an incredibly ambitious way, in a way actually that I think probably has a lot of people feeling uncomfortable with the sweeping nature of the proposals. But it, it's a long way away from becoming law, but it, it is something that's very much generating a lot of debate at the moment. And what exactly is it laying out? What is it suggesting? What, what vision does it, does it lay out? So, so what we've got at the moment is a resolution, not an actual bill yet, essentially describes a few different things. One is what the approach to climate policy ought to be in the U.S., and it's a really ambitious one. It calls for a shift to dependence entirely on clean and renewable fuels within 10 to 20 years, a massive investment in new infrastructure, transporting green infrastructure, you know, buildings being refitted, we're talking about trillions of dollars of new spending. Uh, but then it combines all of that with kind of a broad push for what you might call economic justice. And that includes things like job training and placement programs, maybe even something like a job guarantee where everyone who wants a job can can have one, possibly provided by the state. It might include things like healthcare for all, like a universal basic income. But the idea is to link these two priorities, you know, turning the economy into something that's much more economically just and at the same time much cleaner and greener. And so why this push then to, to link those things, the, the sort of the straight climate change agenda and the sort of economic justice agenda? Well, I think there's a few different ways to kind of look at the, the motivation for linking them together. You know, there's, there's kind of a hard-nosed political economy story, which is that you need to build a political coalition that will support all this and the votes aren't there if you just focus on climate. But if you start throwing bones to labor unions, to domestic manufacturers, then maybe you get a coalition that could actually drive something this ambitious into law. You know, if you're just talking about the sort of bill that we might favor uh, at The Economist, which would be something like a, a carbon tax where maybe the revenues from the carbon tax are refunded, like that's a really good policy. It's a really elegant, efficient policy. But it's not something that the typical voter is necessarily going to get super excited about. Their petrol is going to be more expensive. Maybe they get some sort of carbon rebate check from the government, but that's probably no more than $50, $100 a month. It's not the sort of thing to get people in the streets kind of clamoring for major change, whereas, you know, a Green New Deal that says we're going to restore prosperity, we're going to start exporting green technologies, that's going to create tons of jobs, you know, we're going to make sure that you have a good income, good health care. That is the sort of thing that really could rally some people. But I, I think some of the people who are, are really keen on the Green New Deal, you know, just believe that our inability to, to tackle climate change is about power structures in the economy. It's about having a, a corporation-driven economy. It's about a system that is fundamentally unfair, and you really can't get to the kind of decarbonization that we need without upending those power structures. And that means a far more left-leaning approach to economic policy. Well, quite apart from getting uh, support for it, do you think it would work? Do you think that this sort of sort of this agenda of change can actually be accomplished? I mean, there, there's really two, two, two parts to that question. And one is kind of the technical side of it. You know, what is it actually going to take to meet the climate goals that we have? And I think that it's not the case that it's necessary to do everything that's in the Green New Deal to meet those climate goals. Certainly, it's not necessary to provide health care for all, free college for all, universal basic income for all to meet the climate goals. What this really is a statement about in a lot of ways is the politics. The fundamental truth is that we've had a pretty good sense that humans are causing global climate change for a while now. 
And despite all that knowledge, we just haven't gotten anywhere with it, right? We just haven't gotten the political movement necessary to make the, the changes we need. And so this is basically a bet that this approach is going to be politically workable where the other approach has not. And we don't know at all for sure whether it's right that this is politically workable. We can say that the status quo has failed. But what about the money? All of this does sound really expensive. Yeah, it's going to be hugely expensive. And this, I think, is where a lot of the debate has focused now because the supporters of the Green New Deal sort of say, well, we paid for the Second World War and, you know, that all worked out. Nobody really asked a lot of questions about funding at the time. Surely we can come up with the money this time. You know, a lot of people have said that the approach to funding has not been particularly serious and that if you actually wanted to do all this stuff, you're going to at some point have to talk about broad new tax increases. And those sorts of things just really aren't in in the proposals at this point. So it's not a very solid set of plans? It is a very long way from being the kind of legislation that you would want to actually pass. You know, there's an awful lot of really important details to be worked out. And I think supporters would say that, practically speaking, that's okay, that right now Democrats are not in a position to pass any sort of major legislation. And so they have at least two years to kind of work out the details. And in a sense, maybe this is just kind of the opening stage of the negotiation, and we'll see where it goes from here. Well, what about the the chances that it could sort of backfire, that kind of packing all of these things together and uh, having it painted as something that was pie in the sky or unfeasibly expensive and so on actually becomes a, you know, kind of turns this into a, an albatross around the Democrats' necks? I mean, that's certainly a possibility. And I think it was interesting, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, you know, she's been pretty dismissive of the Green New Deal. She sort of waved it away as the, what do you call it, green dream. And some people have read that as kind of a savvy operator's sensible reading that this is not necessarily something that's going to be a political winner. It might make it easier for Republicans to stoke up fears about creeping socialism, which is a a message that Donald Trump made in his State of the Union last week. There's another way of looking at, at this, which is that A lot of the sort of electoral politics we've seen over the past decade, it's been less about persuading the other side and more about stoking up enthusiasm on your side. And perhaps this is the thing to do it. There's really no way to know who's who's right about that until uh, until we have another election where this is at the heart of the matter. Ryan, thanks a lot. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has been in power for just 12 months. But already he faces a general election in May. He set the date for the election at last week's State of the Nation address. We begin this new year encouraged by the progress that we have made. It was an opportunity to reflect on his first year as president and to lay out the government's agenda for the year. Working together in reviving our economy and restoring our country's democratic institutions. How his party performs will depend on his ability to turn around South Africa's battered economy and take on a kleptocratic elite within his own party. Both have big consequences for a weary electorate. Last weekend, the country faced rolling blackouts due to mismanagement at ESCOM, 
the state-owned power utility. And today, union workers are preparing to strike over job losses. Mr. Ramaphosa took office last February after the resignation of his predecessor, Jacob Zuma. As I leave, I will continue to serve the people of South Africa as well as the ANC. Under Mr. Zuma's watch, Africa's second largest economy went through a decade of stagnation and a vast system of patronage and corruption was allowed to flourish. That eroded trust in the ruling party, the African National Congress, or ANC. The ANC is the Liberation Party of South Africa. It's the party that led the fight to end apartheid, uh, racist white minority rule. It's Nelson Mandela's party. It has huge historical and emotional significance for many South Africans. And the ANC has been in power since the first democratic elections in 1994. Erin Conway-Smith is Southern Africa correspondent for The Economist, based in Johannesburg. I think the public has become distanced from the party under Mr. Zuma. Mr. Ramaphosa offered a hope that this sort of old ANC could be brought back. Aaron has closely followed Mr. Ramaphosa's progress since he made the last State of the Nation speech in 2018, soon after taking the presidency. At the time, Mr. Ramaphosa was very new to the job. He was promising to revive the economy, uh, restore investor confidence in South Africa, create jobs, crack down on the corruption that had become rampant under Mr. Zuma. He has made some progress, but it's all been pretty incremental. It's been hard for him to make any sweeping changes while he's been continuing to fight factionalism within his party uh, related to Mr. Zuma, who still has allies in, in powerful positions in the ANC. And why has South Africa's economy been struggling so much? Traditional industries such as mining have declined and there hasn't been anything to replace it, really. Economic growth hasn't kept pace with the increasing population. There is a pretty big skills mismatch. A lot of young people are emerging from high school unprepared, unskilled. The South African currency, the RAND, has been very volatile. It's been affected a lot by what's happening in the rest of the world in the U.S., but also taken huge hits from some of the actions by Mr. Zuma, such as repeatedly firing his finance ministers. Ratings agencies have downgraded the country's sovereign debt to junk status. Some of them have it right on the edge, near junk status. I think investor confidence really has suffered under uh, Mr. Zuma under the kind of almost 10 years in which he was the president of the country. Corruption really became so rampant that a lot of investors haven't felt comfortable putting their money into the South African economy. And what's Mr. Ramaphosa been doing to uh, address the skills mismatch and investor confidence and and all of that to, to pull South Africa out of the doldrums? Mr. Ramaphosa had a job summit in October where he brought together key people in in the country to try to develop some ideas as to how to create jobs. He also had an investment summit where he was trying to attract new investment to South Africa and also just restore confidence in the country. Right, but a lot of uh, the confidence questions around South Africa have to do with the, the sort of endemic corruption. What's Mr. Ramaphosa been doing about that? Mr. Ramaphosa has a reputation of being a real anti-corruption fighter. He appointed several commissions of inquiry to look into different facets of the corruption problem in South Africa. Some of these are actually broadcast live on TV every day, making for some pretty gripping viewing. We've been hearing about bags of cash being used for bribery, favors being done for people in powerful positions. But what's really become apparent is that there's rot sort of at every level of government, and especially within Mr. Ramaphosa's own party, within the ANC. 
So you you said that you know the ANC is a party extremely near to the country's heart. Do you do you think all of this corruption, ugliness you know, amid you know, a tanking economy and so on will kind of distance the public from the party? Mr. Ramaphosa has talked a lot about party renewal. After a period of doubt and uncertainty, we have arrived at a moment of hope and renewal. In getting back to kind of the old ANC that people loved and felt so strongly about. But I think what's become apparent in the revelations and these inquiries is just the extent of the rot. And really, I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to clean it all out. Well, another thing that came up in the State of the Nation speech was this issue of of land reform. What is Mr. Ramaphosa planning on that score? And and do you think it will have any effect on these, these economic questions? Yeah, land reform really has a strong emotional tug for a lot of black South Africans. So in South Africa, the majority of land is still owned by white South Africans. The black majority that was dispossessed of their land has never got it back. Any change that's happened under the ANC has really been quite minimal. So there's a pressure to rectify that. And the ANC has said that it will change the country's constitution to allow land to be expropriated without compensation. It's unclear what, how that will actually be implemented. And Mr. Ramaphosa has been quite cautious when talking about that, saying that any land expropriation will be done in a way that it doesn't upset investors, doesn't threaten food security, that sort of a thing. To to allay fears of sort of Zimbabwe-style land grabs. So all of this is kind of in the context of a, a run-up to the general election in May. What's at stake for Mr. Ramaphosa as we get closer to that date? Should Mr. Ramaphosa lead the ANC to a relatively strong showing in the May election, mindful that the ANC's majority has actually been sliding in previous elections, the thought is that this will strengthen his ability to continue with reforms. There's a school of thought that says that a strong mandate at the polls will leave Mr. Ramaphosa freer to pursue sort of big changes, although I tend to think this seems a bit out of character for him. He's someone that does something with consensus and does things sort of gradually. The concern is that a weak showing for the ANC may in fact strengthen the hand of Jacob Zuma and his allies, and Mr. Ramaphosa will then be caught in more battles trying to retain his grip on the party. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. The column's named after Samuel Johnson, of course, the great lexicographer of the 18th century. Lane Green writes our Johnson column all about language. 1747, when he sat down to write his dictionary, he said that all change is of itself an evil and that he hoped to fix the language in place. But when he wrote about it again in 1755, after eight years of work on the dictionary, Johnson realized that he would never stop the language changing. He said that trying to enchain syllables is like trying to lash the wind. I like to think of my role as a language columnist, for The Economist in particular, as bringing the values of The Economist to analysis of language. We often have a free market liberal attitude towards other things, economic and social and political But then a lot of people, and some of them are in this building, think about language in a very kind of authoritarian way. Do this, don't do that. And so I try to bring a bit of those liberal values to writing about language itself with curiosity, with empiricism, with a sense of tolerance and enjoyment for language. Even though I'm a columnist, which usually means having strong opinions, I'm also something of a chronicler, educator about language. I like to learn things. And if I'm interested in something, then the reader, I hope, will be interested as well. Recently, Lane's been thinking a lot about metaphors. The Economist's style guide has some warnings about them. 
It suggests that such a figure of speech should be used only occasionally if it is to have effect. Seems like lots of politicians haven't been similarly advised. Or perhaps they didn't get the memo. They turn their back on that advice. Their actions fly in the very face of it. She seems to be wanting to have a cake and eat it. We will seek to avoid a disruptive cliff edge. We're going to win so much, you may even get tired of winning. And you'll say, please, please, it's too much winning. We can't take it anymore. But there's one political metaphor that drives Lane up the wall. Why declare war on terrorism or drugs, things that can't lose a war? He's recently written about the dangers of a metaphor that leads you down the garden path. You're never going to win the war on poverty. Drugs are not going to show up and sign a surrender on the decks of the battleship Missouri like uh, the Japanese did in the Second World War and so on. And so the war is meant to recruit part of the metaphor, the idea of a great national struggle. But people forget the actual fighting and winning part of the war metaphor, which is pretty core to a war. And so I think it often gets politicians into a tight spot. Lane, aren't you splitting hairs here? These, these are workable metaphors. Aren't, aren't they good enough? What makes a good metaphor for me is whether the core elements of the metaphor are present in the thing that you want to compare it to. If I say life is a highway, I mean that it's long and you may not know where you're going to end up. But I don't mean literally that you're going to have a flat tire or that you have to stop and tank up your car every once in a while. Those are peripheral elements to the highway metaphor. The journey is central. So the reason I don't like the war metaphor is because that element of of defeat and winning the war is central. And if you literally can't win the war, then you can never win a war on drugs. Uh, Then then you're you're missing a core element, not one of those kind of peripheral, forgettable elements of the war. Lane, if these metaphors are so imprecise, why don't people have more problems with them? Well, people do have problems with them. They have lots of problems with them. For example, there's a, a man called George Lakoff. He's a linguist at Berkeley. But he's often fought on the side of the American left to get them to reframe things. For example, he says that Republicans very effectively metaphorize taxes as a burden, and so tax relief is always a good thing. He wants people to see what the taxes get you, and so he wants the left to use the metaphor of membership fees. So you pay your fees, but you get access to good things that you like and want. But do these metaphors really make that much of a difference? I mean, they might be a bit vague, but do they change anyone's mind? In, in a laboratory condition, you can see the strong effects of a metaphor. There's an experiment where some researchers at Stanford asked a group of subjects, they gave them a description of a fictional town, and they said, crime is a beast ravaging the city of Addison. And then they give a different group a identical paragraph with statistics on crime and everything, but they let it off with crime is a virus ravaging the city of Addison. They asked both groups what they would recommend in terms of solutions to this. And in the beast condition, most people recommended something like tougher law and order policies, more cops, longer jail sentences, things like that. In the virus condition, that was lowered significantly and people were more likely to recommend what looked like sort of public health solutions, so after-school programs and education and preschool and all these things. The majority still went for these law and order proposals, but a much reduced majority. So you see in a lab where nothing else is being manipulated that people can pretty strongly be influenced by the metaphor that they're hearing. Well, uh, Lane, I, I, I wish you luck with your war on metaphors. Thank you, I think. (laughs) Thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.